to direct you, to guide you, and to keep your attention uh, with him. Uh, he does that in a lot of different ways in my life. But sometimes, sometimes he speaks uh, in, in such a clear way, it comes across as, as an impression, um, almost like he's speaking out loud but not, uh, just to my heart. And um, we're going in and out up here. And yesterday was one of those days when I felt like God was just speaking to me about this particular message. Now, typically on Saturday mornings, uh, I will look over my notes and look over this scripture again and kind of get it in my head and get it in my heart and then go on about my day and do some of the things I'm doing. And I'll check back in with that. Um, I think we're getting there. We're getting there. Hang on. All right. Um, and then as, as that day begins to unfold and those thoughts come, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'm, I'm able to kind of mull that over uh, in my spirit. And yesterday, I had this moment, I, I remember exactly where I was, when the Lord just, I, I read one of these scripture that we're going to look at today, just one of the verses that just kind of popped off, and I was just kind of rolling that around in my head and heart, and, and God just seemed to say this, I, I'm going to have somebody here particularly today, that needs this message. And that's, I told Kathy, I said, that's a little intimidating for me. It's a little challenging because I think, oh God, I don't want to mess this up. But somebody's here today, and you're here specifically to hear the scripture that we're about to look at and this message we're about to share. So I'm going to ask you to listen just in case it might be you. It might be you. It may be me. Anthropologists tell us that one-third of all human beings who've ever lived on this planet have died at the hands of another human being. Just let that sink in for a moment. One out of every three people who've ever drawn breath on planet Earth have died through war, violence, or crime. Their lives were ended at the hands of another human being. One out of every three people. That's amazing to me. I'm sure you've heard of the Hatfields and McCoys. There was a television series, I think it was on the History Channel, uh, a, a while back, and it was really well done. It was pretty good, and that motivated me. Sometimes I see a movie or a television show, I want to know what's going on behind that. I'm kind of geeky about that, and so I will start reading until I'm exhausted about that particular era, you know, whatever it was. And I did that with the Hatfields and McCoys. And they were two real families uh, that I know you've heard about it your whole life, but they had an honest-to-goodness feud, one of the most famous feuds in all of history. Went back and kind of studied that because I, I thought, well, you know, that's kind of fascinating and really, really sad. The McCoys lived on the Kentucky side of the border, and the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. The Hatfields fought in the Confederacy. The McCoys fought for the Union side. And so they didn't like each other before they ever, the feud ever broke out. They just didn't get along and had a lot of differences. The feud started in 1878. And it lasted all the way until 1891. And between those years, this feud cost 12 lives. A dozen people died, members of both families, and it got so intense that at one time the governors of both Kentucky and West Virginia called up the state militia 
in order to maintain order and peace in that little area, that little community. Uh, and believe it or not, because you know, the thing that got me, that was, I was curious about, is what in the world happened to start a feud like that? And you won't believe it. It started over a pig. Floyd Hatfield found a pig on his property, and he claimed that it was his own. Well, Randolph McCoy said, that's not a Hatfield pig. Uh, that was his pig. And then the, the, the matter was taken to court. Uh, it, it, it was just ridiculous. It just got, it got to that, that place. Uh, and the McCoys lost uh, the decision because the testimony of Stanton Hatfield, who actually was a relative of both families, and here's one of the problems. The judge presiding uh, over the case was Anderson Hatfield. And the star witness wound up being killed by two of the McCoy brothers. And the fight was on. I'm not going to give you a lot of details. You can go back and Google it if you want to. But uh, today, uh, we see the result of that. And there's finally peace made. And even now, they have reunions and they get together and picnic and that kind of thing. Because it was a, a big deal. And almost everybody's heard of that. Today, there are Hatfield and McCoy feuds everywhere. There are Hatfields who married McCoys. Some of you are here today. There are Hatfield and McCoy brothers and sisters living under the same roof. There are Hatfields living next to McCoy neighbors. There are Hatfields working with McCoys. I've got a strong hunch that there's the Hatfield Baptist Church and the McCoy Baptist Church. And they're probably about a mile or two apart and it all started over a pig. Our culture is rampant with conflict and arguments and fighting and lawsuits and domestic violence and broken friendships and bitter divorces. I wonder how many of you right now are living in the middle of some kind of disagreement. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago a feud I had with a guy and I was about 13 or 14 years old. He picked on me a lot. It broke out into a fight. Uh, I picked up what my dad called an equalizer. And with this equalizer, I, I sent him to the hospital. And we stayed enemies until a year or two after high school. Isn't this ridiculous that you can be 13 or 14 years old and some of you guys are sitting here and you've already made enemies and you've only been on the planet for a decade and a half, and you've already got enemies. And some of you have got enemies you've had for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And some of you are in one or even more right now. I wonder how many of us are here today, and you're no longer speaking to one of your relatives because of some old conflict. Some of you are contemplating a divorce because of a conflict. Some of you absolutely hate your job because you get there and there's constant conflict. This conflict, according to James, has a way of revealing whether or not our faith is real. And that's been this kind of operating principle 
that's, that's this program running behind the scenes all throughout this series. How do we know and how do we develop real faith uh, in, in our lives? So here's what we're going to learn today. And this is your, your key takeaway for today. Real faith handles conflict by surrendering that conflict to God. Then when you've done that, when that is surrendered, then you can stay, step back and say, okay, God, what's the next right thing to do? Now how do I resolve this conflict? See, most of us skip that part and we just begin trying to fix things or have our way about it. So here's the idea. Real, um, real faith surrenders the conflict to God. Now, James says, if you take these, and I'm just going to say they're steps, for lack of a better word, this process, this flow of, of, of instruction, this information under the power of the Holy Spirit, if you do this, you are not only going to be able to manage the conflicts uh, in your life many, many, many times, you're actually going to be able to ultimately resolve conflict. The first thing is to consider the cause of the conflict. Why did it happen? How did it get started? James says this in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James has this way with his personality to get right to the heart of the problem. And he sets it up right up front that a big part, if not the major cause of the conflict that's going on between you and this other person, this other party, uh, and I understand there's a circumstance you can disagree about. There's a situation that you don't see eye to eye on. I get that. I get that part. Otherwise, there wouldn't be conflict if we all saw everything completely alike, and I just always, well, that's the way I feel about it, you know. It, it's not going to happen it, it, with anybody. So we, we, we see that part, but he, what he says is that the real conflict is not just the one that's going on outside of you, but that there was already a conflict inside you that you brought uh, to the situation when you came. And he, he says it's our desires. There's this conflict going on inside. He said it comes from our desires. Now that little word desires really sums up whatever it is that makes you comfortable, makes you feel good, makes you feel safe. That thing in you that wants to get your way, you know, that I'm really not comfortable, I don't like this. I, that, that's your desires. He said, there's something in you and your desires, and that's where you want to feel that. Now, as M Mama used to say, it takes two to tango. Remember that when you're fussing or fighting with your brother or sister, and you're pointing, it wasn't me, it was all them, and you think, well, it takes two. It always takes two. Uh, whenever there's a conflict, usually both parties share at least some of the fault. Now, the minute I say that, whether I say it right here or if I say it in a counseling office or in your home, you're going to get defensive, right? I mean, you're going to say, yeah, well, you know, well, you don't, let me tell you what happened, you know, and you're going to give me your side, you're going to give somebody your side of that. The problem is nobody wants to admit that they have a part in that, that some of it. And I understand because, I mean, I'm a person. I live on planet Earth too. But it's rarely 100-0. It's 100% their fault. 
I am an innocent lamb. You know, I all know how sweet I am and how compliant and how sensible and reasonable I am. It couldn't have been, you know. And so what we do, even if it's, let's say it was 80% their fault, 70% their fault, and you're only in fault 20%, 30%. But here's what we do. In our personalities, we shift it all because we think, well, I'm mostly right in this, so the way I'm going to perceive it and deal with it is that I'm all right and they're all wrong. And so we live and we operate and we take the next step with that, you know, premise that kind of locked into our head. The problem is nobody wants to admit, yeah, I kind of got a little part of this myself. Proverbs eighteen nineteen is this powerful verse and it says this. A brother, not a stranger, people I don't like or know rarely offend me. It's people I've been more offended by Christians in my life than anybody else because that's the world that I live in it says this a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle strong cities had fortifications they built these high walls around the entire city and here's what we do we build these walls around our hearts around our life to protect ourselves And nobody gets in those walls unless we let them inside. I met a man once, and I think we were in a restaurant, and shook his hand and smiled just like I always would. And the minute he walked away, Kathy said, you don't like that guy, do you? I thought, well, of course. You see how polite I was? Was I rude? Did I give off some vibe? She goes, no, I just know you. (laughs) I've just lived with you for three and a half decades. I can tell when you don't like somebody and you start shutting down. And the armor comes up and you close off. And I can tell that about her. Of course, everybody likes her and she likes everybody. But um, you've got that thing in you. You can build those walls in a split second. Or you can let them down when you feel safe with somebody. Why? Because we've been hurt. You were probably hurt by the time you got to first grade or kindergarten. And you don't want to get hurt again. You want to minimize that as much as possible. So we only open up to those that we think are going to be sympathetic to our point of view. Those who are on our side about this. Those people, and we'll tell them the problem. And isn't it funny how we tell it, you know? And we think, well, how would the other person tell it? Well, not exactly in the way that I would tell it, uh, because I'm gonna I'm gonna bend it in a, in a way where you can see my side. There is, and we try in our flesh to guard our personal rights and feelings. We do this in our flesh. Even if we think the other person is all wrong or 70% wrong, and we know, okay, I've got to own 20%. I've got to own 30 40% of what's going on here. It, it's on me. But we don't want to think about that. In fact, we're very merciful to ourselves. I can rationalize why I did something or said something. I was tired and I was under pressure and I was, you know, just, I was just having a bad day and I just said that and, you know, and I just, I'm sorry. And, you know, isn't it, isn't it funny how lenient we are with ourselves and we give each other, you know, we give ourselves a little extra wiggle room and space and understanding and forgiveness. But with the other person, we become amazingly judgmental and demanding and unforgiving. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 4. 
He said, for the weapons of our warfare, and it is a warfare, are not carnal, they're not flesh. He said, we don't, we don't do this in our flesh, but mighty in God. For pulling down, you can circle this next word, strongholds. You can be very godly, you can even be right in the situation, but have a stronghold of rejection or a stronghold of insecurity running in the background that's going to cause you to pull back and not want to resolve this. And I found this interesting. It says, casting down arguments. The power of God in you, when you get out of your flesh and you're in Christ and you respond to this in Him, He can pull down that stronghold that's already there working in your personality. He can pull that down and heal that. And then, because that's out of the way, He can cast down the argument. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive, because that's where this is all happening, It's all in your thoughts. You wake up thinking about it, or you go to bed thinking about it, you're driving, and you work yourself up, and now you're mad all over again. Have you ever done that? You've been having a good day, and you start thinking about that. You see that person, you think, well, there's that rascal now. I can't believe what he did to me, and I just, I tell you what, what she, I heard what she said, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you're, you're there. He goes, no, what's going to happen when you follow this process is you're going to be able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Have you ever noticed that whenever we're having a conflict with with somebody else, we try to explain it to another person, and we always move into the third person? We always describe it as if we're above it. We say things like, well, the reason that we're having this difference, this conflict, is because he did this. Because she said that. See, from the very first sentence, we, we shift it, over to that other person in the conflict. James says, if you want to get to the heart of the conflict you're having, you're not going to like this. Stop pointing fingers and go look in the mirror. He lets us in on this little secret. External conflict is always caused by this internal conflict that's already going on. Conflict that is occurring on the outside is a result of this turmoil that's already there on the inside. Folks, we filter everything through our past rejections and how we've been perceived or received and, or accepted. Matthew 24.10 says, In the last days, and I believe we are living in the last days, many will be and this is talking about in the body of Christ, offended. We offend each other. And then when we're offended, we betray each other. You try to bring about that person's, you want them to be heard, you want something to happen. And then that leads to, we hate each other. I know Christians who are going to be in heaven together, who aren't speaking on earth, because they hate each other. They got offended, they betrayed each other, and now they hate each other. We have this tendency, we want our way. I want my way. 
and I'm always right. And by the way, I, I really am. I say that kind of, you know, metaphor or just, but I, I really am, and I, some people don't get that. We want people to come over to our point of view, the way we see things. And when you get two people together who both want their ways, and those ways are different, well, it's inevitable. Automatically, that means only one person's going to get their way, so that's causing conflict. You see it, it's happening right now in our preschool. One child wants this toy, and the other child says, well, I want that toy, or I want this, or I want to do... And, and there's conflict before we even get out of the nursery. We're in conflict with each other. And they're in there right now, those little... They're in there betraying each other, <laughs> and offending one another, and they're just offended. A couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a baby just, children love me, and, uh, the, but there was a, a baby just leaned over and just surprised all, just leaned over for me to hold, and I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I was, I'm holding this baby standing right over here. Well, my daughter and son-in-law brought in from preschool after worship uh, my grandson, and he was fine, but he looked up, and he was just right there, and he looked up, and he saw me holding this other baby, and he's like, whoa, wait a minute we got a conflict. That's my dandy. What are you doing? He starts going, uh, uh, dandy. That's how he says my name. And, you know, I think we've got a conflict. And he can't even talk yet. Why? You see what I'm talking about? We've known this our whole life. The root cause of conflict is usually not the conflict. The root cause is selfishness. I want my way. I like having my, my way, and so do you. Now, the reason why James says that our desires produce these fights and quarrels is simply because the only way that you can satisfy every self-centered desire you have, and whether you admit it or not, that's really what you want, uh, you have is by, by conquering the self-centered desire that other people have, unless it happens to match yours. And when we do that, we're not living in our spirit. We're living according to the flesh. Now understand, I'm not saying that all conflict is bad. Sometimes I think conflict's necessary. I think there's, there's a good kind of tension sometimes in conversations or, or in a moment where there's something's happened. I think conflict is, is, is a needed thing in, in society and in culture sometimes. What I'm talking about here is the kind of Hatfield and McCoy conflict, which is carnal. It's just ungodly. The overwhelming majority of things that we quarrel about aren't really worth fighting about. But at least be honest enough with yourself to evaluate the fact that many times, if not most times, you do contribute to some of the conflict. You can see, I'm just, pu I'm just pushing it to at least own that. If I can at least get us to admit that. Okay, 10%. 10%'s my fault. Okay, I'll run with that. We'll, we'll take that. Now you're ready to take the second step. Eliminate your part of the problem. 
When we don't get our way and conflict arises, here's what happens. In, in James 4, 2, he says, you want something, you don't get it. It's been happening to me my whole life. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and cov- covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. So we immediately we react to the situation out of our flesh, and we do what our flesh would do. I have a friend who's being mistreated by someone, and I was kidding him, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm from Fraser, and I still know a couple of guys. Let me call Ricky. <laughs> He'll go burn his house down, poison his dog. You know, I mean, no, I'm just kidding. But you, you see what I'm saying in our flesh, and you would think I would never do that, but there's been, you've had your moments. Because we don't get what we want. And when you don't get what you want, you don't get your way, what do you try to do? You try to hurt the other person, those who won't give in to your way, and they're standing their ground. We've all done that to other people. We've all tried to hurt others when we had a conflict with them and we didn't get our way. You probably did it before you could even remember that you did it. Until you understand your part of the problem, which is your selfish desire to get your way, you're never going to resolve the conflict. You'll never reconcile that relationship. And I understand, you may be at a place right now, you may be in a season in this history with this person or whatever the other party is, and you're thinking, well, Dan, that's not a real problem for me because I don't want to reconcile the relationship. I'm just fine. But you see, in Christ, we're in the body of Christ. Folks, we're, we're in this together. We're in this together. And then the problem will just get bigger because ultimately your self-interest, you can't contain that. It's going to spill over into not just these relationships, but into your relationship with God. He goes on to say in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. You just leave God out of the equation, out of the situation. What he's saying is that you would have some of the things that you are desiring, some of the things you wish would go your way, would go your way, if you would simply just ask God to give them to you at the right time instead of trying to get them on your own. And that's what real faith does. But you know what we tend to do? We will spend days and weeks, and months, and even some of you years or decades, angry and bitter because you didn't get your way, and you spent 30 seconds praying that God would intervene, and then you took off on your own. The problem just keeps growing. James 4.3 says, When you ask, when you do get around to ask, And you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it, uh, spend what you get on your pleasures. See, in our flesh, we're so selfish that even our prayers are poisoned with selfish desires. 
when our kids were little and Rebecca was uh, just maybe, what, three or four or five years old, and of course Aaron's just one or two, Rebecca would pray, sometimes like at the dinner table, and would pray about Aaron. Lord, help Aaron to be good today. I am being good today. I mean, they would start having this conversation back and forth, and we would get kind of tickled. We would think it was funny, but they would do this and help Aaron to understand that he needs to do this. I'm not doing that. I mean, you know, and they would do this back and forth, and we thought, we're praying. <laughs> and you may not go that far, or you may think we've matured past that, but some of our prayers are poisoned with selfish desires. We even come to God and say to God, you know, I, I want it my way, I don't want your way, and Lord, I understand if I'm, I don't even want to pray about it because I've kind of got a feeling, I know what you're going to say and the direction this is going to go if I start praying about it. But we can get so self-centered that we even pray for the right things, and we don't get them because we're praying with for the wrong, with the wrong reason, the wrong motivation behind it. We spend so much time praying for selfish requests that we wonder why God doesn't even bother answering our prayers. Because it's all about me, and it's all about me getting what I want, and then prayer becomes yet another manipulative tool that I can use in trying to achieve that. The point I want to underscore here is, is this. If you're in the middle of a conflict... You need to take a time out on focusing on what the other person is bringing to the table and just focus on what it is that you're bringing to the table. What is it you evaluate the cause of the conflict that honestly looks in the mirror and looks inside yourself and begin to eliminate your part of the problem. I know that's easier said than done. So here's how to do it. First, evaluate, elevate God's place of authority in the situation, in the conflict. He is over that. He is over you. And here's the real problem. When you make up your mind that your attitude is going to be, I'm going to get my way in this. I'm going to win. I'm going to make sure that somehow I'm going to get what I want. Then you automatically move God from the center of this. You push him into the background. You automatically, you know, you, you've lost that with him. James says this in verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That little word opposed to is a military term. The only place outside of Scripture that it shows up is in, in, in conflict, uh, in, a, in a battle, in a war. What God is saying is, when you're proud, I'm going to war with you. So now not only are you in the middle of this conflict with another brother or sister, you've got God. <laughs> you know, lining up his army ready for battle uh, against you. And you're thinking, but God, wait a minute. I'm the good guy here. I'm the, I'm the victim. What God is basically saying is that you're so proud uh, that you're in, and when you're in conflict with somebody else and you can't see and you can't admit that, that you're part of the problem and you aren't willing to do your part to reconcile that relationship and relationships are so precious and so important to God. He says, not only do you got a problem with that person, now you got a problem with me. And we're at war. So how do you deal with your pride? Because that seems to be the thing, the attribute that's messing us up. 
Well, he tells us in the very next verse, in verse 7, he says, submit yourselves. You can circle that word, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Surrender, submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Now, strange as it may sound, the only way to win the war over pride is surrender. It's just surrender. There must be an unconditional surrender to the authority of God in your life. Now, most of us don't want to lose whatever it is we have at stake. It's risky because you think, if I surrender everything completely, then I'm not gonna, I may not get my way. I may lose this battle. So I'm going to hold that part back, and everything else I'm going to surrender. And God says, that's not the way this works. Unconditional surrender. Uh, as in, a, in a matter of fact, um, if there's any part of you that is not completely, totally surrendered to what God wants for you, then that is the part of you that will always cause conflict with other people. And you may not be aware of it, but people who've known you for a long time, your parents, your spouse, your best friend, and maybe you've known somebody for 10 or 20 or 30 years, and you go, well, I'm, in, I'm having this conflict with so-and-so, and they, if they were honest and willing to risk your wrath or the status of your friendship, they would say, you know something I've noticed about you through the years? is that any time a circumstance like this doesn't go your way, it triggers this in your personality. You get catty, you get snarky, you get sarcastic, you get mean, you get hurt, you play the victim. There's something uh, that it'll release, and that whatever that is, is what's not surrendered in you yet to the Lord. And when you surrender that, then beautiful things can happen. I have a problem with this foot. It's, uh, I have Achilles tendonitis, and I think it goes away, and then it comes back again. Uh, and you, you may be familiar with that, or you've, you've had problems like that yourself. Do you remember the story of Achilles? He, as an infant, his mother took him to this historical river, I think it was called the River Styx, and to give him these powers where he couldn't be defeated, she dips him into the river, but she holds on to his heel. And she doesn't think to, when she pulls him up to flip him over and dip that heel in, she leaves, and that becomes a vulnerable place in, in, in him that would ultimately cost him his life. And to this day, we say, oh, well, that's her Achilles heel is this. And we know it as a weakness. What is your Achilles heel? Any part of you that's not completely surrendered to the authority of God in your life, whatever it is, that part which is not surrendered is the part where you're always going to have struggle and defeat. Why would you want to live the rest of your life with that being chronic? that constantly occurring simply because out of pride you don't want to admit that that's a weakness. So now we, we see this, we come to this ultimate piece of advice that James gives to anybody that's in the middle of a conflict, in the middle of a war, in the middle of a fight, and you're not getting your way. And it's not going to get any better. This is really, really good. In verse, 
8 of chapter 4, he says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So instead of getting on the phone, instead of texting, instead of getting online, you know, and say, well, you won't believe what they did, and here's this, and he says, whoa, 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 stop doing that. Stop doing that for a minute. Step out of the situation, and don't even think about that right now, and just go over to the Lord, and just be near Him, and just seek His face, and just start leaning in to where He wants you to be as a man, as a woman. Separate from the conflict, you know, we're not, we're not talking about that yet. We're talking about you and the Lord. Um, let me just ask you, and I know this is a question you've heard guys ask before, people like me. Has there ever been a time that you can think of in your life when you were closer to God than you are right now? And are you in conflict? Come near to God and He will come near to you. Now you're not in opposition to God. He's not at war with you. He's with you. He's, he will come near to you. The way to get what you really want in life is to surrender what you want to God. To die to yourself into that area. And I know what you're thinking, because I've thought it too. You're thinking, if I surrender what I want to God, well then will God end up, is that a tricky way to get God to give me what I want? Is that how this will work? Yeah, maybe. You might end up, yeah, but maybe not. Maybe not. I'll tell you this. He will always give you what you need. And it may be a month or a year or five years you look back and go, Oh, God, thank you so much that you didn't give me what I wanted at that time. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you gave me what I need instead because I was just certain, I was 100% positive. I just knew, I knew, I knew that that's what I wanted and that's the way. And when I surrendered to you and I stepped back and maybe he gave it to you and maybe he didn't give it to you, you will always look back and be glad of where and when you surrendered to God and what he did in the situation. Every time, every time, every time. You show me any conflict that's going on, whether it's in a family, a marriage, or even between nations. If you let the parties involved get empty of themselves and what they want and full of God and what He wants, there is no conflict that cannot be solved. Matthew eighteen fifteen spells out what I think is the clearest call in all of Scripture for us to walk in reconciliation. And it just outlines it. And this is maybe a familiar Scripture for some of you. You've read it. Whether we've applied it or not is a whole other issue. It says this. If your brother, and if I ever say brother, you can just put in parentheses sister. It's, it, it works with everybody. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now Jesus begins by saying, if your brother sins against you. Let me just walk, break this down, okay, and walk, walk us through that. This is a call to consider if you've truly been sinned against. Or you're just getting emotional. I mean, did what they do, or was it really a sin and was it really against you? 
Sin means someone has violated Scripture and offended God. And, now, and then you got caught up in that offense. The fact that you just disagree with somebody doesn't necessarily mean that they've actually sinned. If a brother sins against you, that's, that's the premise, and make sure that that's what's really happened. Jesus said, go and tell him his fault. Because we need to be honest with ourselves and with those who've offended us. You don't need to walk around because it's unfair and it's risky to pretend, oh, I'm not offended. Oh, that didn't bother me. That didn't bother me. No, I'm not mad. No, I'm not. What's wrong? Nothing. You ever notice how you can tell if nothing's wrong with your spouse by the way they say nothing? Nothing. 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 <laughs> I mean, you can... Right, don't pretend if it's a... And if it's a valid issue, and oh my goodness, and I feel like I'm just... If I go too far and you get your feelings hurt, you send me an email tomorrow or the next day, or, if you, or don't. Um, but sometimes we're just too sensitive. We just let everything... Well, that hurt my feelings. I mean, come on. And I feel like we're breeding that. We're, we're raising up a generation of hypersensitive people. And everything we say is like this, lo this loaded thing. You know, that, oh, that hurt, or that, oh, you were not being, I think, oh. And I understand some of that's legitimate, and we need to be more careful, and we need to be tender-hearted to one another. But folks, come on. I mean, don't be so easily upset. I saw someone on television, on the news the other night, got up and said, well, we are outraged. And in my heart, I thought, no, you're not. <laughs> That's fake outrage. I can spot that. That's, that's, that's pretend outrage so that you can say we're outraged. And I think, oh, it didn't really bother you that much, but it was a good opportunity for you to make your point. And you see people, you see politicians do it. You see political parties do it. You see whole nations do it. Oh, we as a people were offended. And I think, well, you kind of, but you do it in your marriage. You do it with your brothers and sisters, and you do it with your friends. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Just go and tell them. Approach the person. If you ignore that, it's just going to fuel those pent-up emotions. And what was a little thing, now resentment's going to grow. And Jesus says the problem needs to be solved. And he says this, this next little phrase, between you and him alone. That didn't just slip in. In the original Greek, that means between you and him alone. We need to keep others out of it at this point. When you gossip and when you talk about it, you know, has that ever, what, it, what does it do? It always, it multiplies the problem uh, in, a, in a body of believers and it opens the door to division with your friends and then other people. Now what they're going to do is take up an offense on your behalf and then teams begin to build and I mean, it just, and you've seen that happen. I've seen it happen in churches and in homes and in families. I've seen these alliances shift in my family, my extended family. Somebody gets hurt, and, and they get on the phone, and they call the cousin, and then the cousin tells the mama, and, and all of a sudden, and, then, and this person, there, they've got there, and, and, and it builds. And in mine, it'll shift over the years. Or, well, now I'm on this team, and now I'm on that, you know, and oh, my goodness. He says, just go tell the person. You know, so, okay, uh, go, go, go tell that person. Uh, tell him his fault, uh, and tell it to them alone. And then... He says this, if he hears you, 
And I know for some of you, you're thinking, that's a big if, because they're not going to listen. Well, I understand, but that's on, that's on their side. What you're concerned about is what's on your side. You're trying to fix your side. If he hears you, that raises the issue of our responsibility to listen when we're confronted. Just listen. Everybody's healing depends on you listening. Ideally, forgiveness will be extended between parties and the relationship will be saved. But if your word's ignored, take the situation to God and try another approach. Sometimes God's going to give you something to do, the next right thing, maybe something you hadn't even thought about. Leave room for the fact, this is going to hurt a little, this is going to sting. Leave room for the fact that you might be wrong. You ever been halfway through an argument with somebody or something and you realize you're wrong and you don't know how to get out of it now? (laughs) That's just your pride. I mean, you might be wrong about it. And sometimes if you stop, before you start talking and telling all your friends and getting this all, go- stop and think about, well, you know, that, I shouldn't have said that. Or did, I see how I fueled this because I did that. I, I, I'm wrong. But don't forget, we're, we're responsible to be active and careful listeners. I think a big part of why conflicts happen is we didn't really hear what the other person meant to say or was trying to communicate. We imposed on, well, you said, no, that's not what I said. I said, you know, and how many times has that happened because we just weren't listening? And then Jesus defines the success with resolution, with these words. He says, you gained your brother. The goal of honest confrontation is to regain the friendship, regain the relationship, not further damage it, not just to win in that moment. Aim for a win-win outcome so that nobody walks away from the encounter shamed or rejected. Victory is not putting somebody in their place and strutting away. It's winning them back as a brother or a sister. That's the win. That's the win. I heard an old story, and you've probably heard it, but I'm going to... There was a guy on a desert island, and he had been stranded there for some time, and he was finally rescued. And the rescuers noticed that there are three huts near the, the beach. And they said, well, what's that building? And he goes, well, that's, that's where I live. That's my home. And they said, well, what's that second one? He goes, oh, that's my church. That's where I worship. He goes, what's that third building? He said, oh, that's the church where I used to go. <laughs> I think even by ourselves, even with just one other person, it can be a Hatfield and a McCoy. Folks, next weekend will mark 30 years to the Sunday since Kathy and I joined this church. And in those three decades have seen so many Hatfield and McCoy battles. Churches, families, homes, marriages, and friendships. And most of those started over something like a pig. 
Something that could have been resolved. Life's too short. Relationships are too valuable for you to throw them away in our selfishness, in our pride. Begin today in this process of forgiving and repairing relationships and learning how to move forward in positive ways, in scriptural ways that James has taught us today and watch as the conflicts are fewer and further between and have less intensity and do less and less damage in the body of Christ, in your home, and in your friendships. So that one day, God calls you home, you'll have all these relationships, and maybe just a few enemies, instead of the other way around. Would you stand? Father, we trust you with what happens next. We ask that you would give us the grace and the courage to do the next right thing and to begin healing.